ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so we'll begin today with the next hadith قال الإمام البخاري رحمه الله تعالى حدثنا خلاد بن يحيى قال حدثنا عمر بن ذر سمعت أبي يحدث عن سعيد بن جبير عن ابن عباس رضي الله عنهما أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال يا جبريل ما يمنعك أن تزورنا أكثر مما تزورنا فنزلت وما نتنزل إلا بأمر ربك له ما بين أيدينا وما خلفنا إلى آخر الآية قال هذا كان الجواب لمحمد صلى الله عليه وسلم In this hadith of Ibn Abbas رضي الله عنهما As Ashraq al-Athameen says اشتياق النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم إلى زيارة جبريل it shows us in this hadith how the Prophet ﷺ longed for Jibreel to visit him. He wanted Jibreel to visit him more often. And that's why in the narration it says, Why, O Jibreel, what prevents you from visiting us more than what you currently visit us. What prevents you from visiting us more than how much you currently visit us? لِأَنَّ الْمَلَائِكَةَ عِبَادُ اللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلْ فَيَجِبُ عَلَيْنَا أَن نُحِبَّهُمْ لِلَّهِ The angels are the servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it is upon us to love the angels of Allah. It is upon us to love the angels for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala لأنهم عباده المكرمون because they are the noble servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah said in the Quran regarding them, regarding the angels, لا يسبقونه بالقول وهم بأمره يعملون that they do not precede him in statement but they act upon and implement his command فعرض عليه النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال ألا تزورنا وفي لفظ ما يمنعك أن تزورنا أكثر مما تزورنا that what is it that prevents you from visiting us more than what you currently visit us? So then the ayah was revealed, مَا نَتَنَزَّلُ إِلَّا بِأَمْرِ رَبِّكَ 
that we do not descend except by the command of your Lord. We do not descend except by the command of your Lord. فَالشَّاهِدُ مِنْ هَذَا الْحَدِيثِ قَوْلُهُ مَا نَتَنَزَّلُ كلام فهو كلام الله عز وجل حصل بعد أن قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لجبريل ما منعك أن تزورنا أكثر مما تزورنا The point of this narration is regarding the statement وَمَا نَتَنَزَّلُ That we do not descend except by the command of your Lord So that is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Which occurred after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Had made that comment made that statement what is it that prohibits you from visiting us or prevents you from visiting us more than you do what is the purpose then what is it that we've taken from this narration the affirmation of the kalam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is something we briefly came across before as well. Remember in all of this chapter now, this is the chapter of Tawheed from Sahih al-Bukhari. So within this chapter, there is going to be an affirmation of various aspects of Tawheed. We've been going through various names and attributes of Allah. So here in this hadith, it mentions again the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after that قال حدثنا يحيى قال حدثنا وكيع عن الأعمش عن إبراهيم عن علقمة عن عبد الله قال كنت أمشي مع رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم في حرث بالمدينة وهو متكئ على عصيب فَمَرَّ بِقَوْمٍ مِنَ الْيَهُودِ فَقَالَ بَعْضُهُمْ لِبَعْضٍ سَلُوهُ عَنِ الْرُوحِ وَقَالَ بَعْضُهُمْ لَا تَسْأَلُوهُ عَنِ الْرُوحِ فَسَأَلُوهُ فَقَامَ مُتَوَكِّئًا عَلَى الْعَصِيبِ وَأَنَا خَلْفَهُ فَظَنَنْتُ أَنَّهُ يُوحَى إِلَيْهِ فَقَالْ وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْرُوحِ قُلِ الْرُوحُ مِنْ أَمْرِ رَبِّي وَمَا أُوْتِيْتُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا فقال بعضهم لبعض قد قلنا لكم لا تسألوا In this hadith it mentions that I was walking with the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Fi Harthin Bil Medina In a agricultural field What's the word they give there? In a field In Medina And he was leaning back Ala Asib Leaning back on a stick 
a particular type of stick from a particular makeup. So we were in this field and the Prophet وسلم, was leaning back on this stick. And then there was a group from amongst the Jews that came by and they said to each other, ask him. The Jews in their group, they were saying, go and ask him. Ask the Prophet about Ar-Ruh. Go and ask him about Ar-Ruh. So some of them said, don't ask him about Ar-Ruh. But then in the end, they asked him, فَقَامَ مُتَوَكِّئًا عَلَى الْعَسِيبِ So then he arose from where he was leaning back and I was behind him and I thought that the revelation was going to come upon him and then he said the ayah وَيَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الرُّوحِ And they ask you about الرُّوحِ قُلِ الرُّوحُ مِنْ أَمْرِ رَبِّي Say that is from the affair of my Lord وَمَا أُوْتِيْتُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا And you've not been given from knowledge except a small amount So then they said to each other We told you Don't go and ask him so in this, as Shaykh al says, هَؤُلَاءِ الْيَهُودِ يَسْأَلُونَ الرَّسُولَ صَلَّى سَلَّمْ تَعَنُّتًا وَتَنَطُّعًا لَا أَنَّهُمْ يُرِيدُونَ أَنْ يَرْجِعُوا إِلَى حِكْمِهِ Here the Jews were coming and asking the Prophet وسلم, these questions not because they genuinely wanted the answers to come back to the truth from them, not that they were genuinely asking to find the truth and the answers, but they were asking They were asking, delving into these issues, getting into these topics to try and maybe tie up the messenger that he wouldn't be able to answer, to try and get into some level of questioning that would become complicated getting to a level of questioning that isn't normal and required that was their intent so it was not an intent of genuinely wanting the answer in the quran it mentions وَكَيْفَ يُحَكِّمُونَكَ وَعِنْدَهُمُ التَّوْرَاتِ فِيهَا حُكْمُ اللَّهِ ثُمَّ يَتَوَلَّوْنَ مِنْ بَعْدِ ذَلِكَ وَمَا أُولَئِكَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ that how are they going to make you the judge and they have the Torah in it is the command of Allah and yet they turn away after that they are not believers so they do not take the judgment from the Prophet and they don't ask him except that they want to try and get into confusing affairs and delve into issues and make things 
tied up and purposely asking complicated questions as they think. That's their only real intent behind it all. And that's why they differed amongst themselves in this issue. They were saying, Should they go and try and ask about what is a ruh or should they not? They were thinking, shall we go and try that one? Shall we go and ask about a ruh See what the messenger has to say about that or shall we not? Here the intent behind ar-ruh is nafsul insan, is the, the self of a person. And that is the self, the soul that is in the body. So they were basically going to go to the messenger to ask him about the soul, thinking that this is a complicated issue it's one of those that we'll be able to dig in with, with the Messenger of Allah. So shall we go and complicate things and dig in with this issue of the soul? So they were discussing, shall we go and ask him that? Shall we go and prod in that or shall we not? We know the soul, it is from the, the knowledge of the unseen, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. لا يمكن للإنسان أن يدرك الروح كنها وحقيقتها as, as humans we cannot recognize the reality of the soul we do not know the reality of the soul لكن يعرف ذلك بآثارها but the existence of the soul and the affair of the soul is known by the impact of it we know that we have the soul and we know by evidences anyway, and that is something recognized by us, but the reality of it, how is it, what is it, those details we don't know. And that's why they were there thinking, shall we go and prod the Prophet ﷺ regarding the issue of the soul? Shall we go and dig into that with the Prophet ﷺ, thinking that this is one of those complex affairs? فَقَدْ ثَبَتَ عَنِ النَّبِي صلى الله عليه وسلم أن الروح تقبض وتكفن وأن الميت يراها يتبعها بصره إذا توفيا It's mentioned in a narration that when a person dies that he sees the soul exiting that the eyesight of the person follows the soul exiting وَهَذَا يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّهَا ذَاتٌ جِرْمٌ This therefore indicates that the soul is an actual entity. Something that the eyesight sees upon death, upon its departure. So it is something of an actual entity that is seen. وَهَذَا يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّهَا ذَاتٌ جِرْمٌ وَهَذَا هُوَ مَذْهَبُ أَهْلِ السُّنَّةِ وَالْجَمَاعَةِ فِي الرُّوحِ أَنَّهَا جِسْمٌ لَطِيفٌ لَا يُشْبِهُ هَذِي الْأَجْسَامِ وَلَيْسَ مِنْ مَادَّةٍ مِنْهَا هَذِي الْأَجْسَامِ وَاللَّهُ أَعْلَمْ بِكَيْفِيَّتِهَا وَحَقِيقَتِهَا So this is the belief of Ahl Sunnah regarding our souls. That they are a tangible entity. That they are a tangible entity. 
that they can be seen, the soul when it exits from the body, the eyesight follows the soul exiting from the body. So it is a tangible, standalone entity. But it is not composed in the way that our bodies are of flesh and meat and skeleton and how we are. It is composed in some other way, but it is some tangible entity, and that is the belief of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah regarding the soul. So it is not something that resembles our body, nor made from the same composition of our body, but those details are known to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as to how its reality is and details of its composition are. But it is a tangible entity. Some of the philosophers, they made incorrect statements regarding this. Some of the people of innovation and desires. Some of them said the soul is not actually some entity, some actual tangible entity. They said no. The soul is simply an aspect of the body. It is an aspect of the body, not an independent entity. They said, for example, illness. The body experiences illness. You become ill. But illness, the disease, the illness, is it a tangible entity? Is it like when you get ill with a fever that the doctors can operate and pull out a lump and that's the fever, you're okay now? Can that be done? It cannot because that disease isn't an entity in of itself. It is an aspect of your body. The fever, it occurs within your body, in your body. How it works and how it reacts within the body. It's not an entity. You get a fever, you cannot operate and pull something out of your body and that's the fever pulled out. It's not like that. It's not an entity. Similarly, for example, your strength and your activity, your energetic. Having energy, the fact that you feel energetic in your body one day, is that an entity? Can we operate and pull something out from your stomach, your leg, from somewhere and that's your energetic aspect of your body pulled out you can no longer be energetic in your life it's not like that energy weakness illness these are not standalone entities they are within your body aspects of your body things that occur within your body some of them said the soul is like that it is just an aspect within your body it is not an entity in of itself and that is incorrect. That is incorrect. The soul is a standalone entity. That's what they say. Qa'imun bidatihi or bidatiha. That it is a standalone entity. Exits from your body and your eyesight sees it go. So that is the soul and that is the uh, correct understanding, not just an aspect of your body within your body like illness or energy or etc. Some of them even said it is a physical part of your body. 
It's a part of your body somewhere, a physical part of your body. And again, we know it's not like that. It's not like if you take a chunk out of your leg and the soul is in there. It's not like that. It's not a physical chunk like that of your body. But it's an entity within your body, a standalone entity. Some of them said it is your blood. The makeup of your blood in your body, that is the soul in your blood. And again, that is not something established like that. Some of them said it is the actual full body. And that's very similar to the first point in essence that it's all an aspect of your body. But the reality is, as Ahlul Sunnah have mentioned, the soul is a standalone entity that is within your body and then it exits from your body. Some of the philosophers they said regarding the soul. الروح شيء ليس داخل العالم ولا خارجه ولا مستقل بالبدن ولا منفصل عنه ولا مباين للبدن ولا محايد ولا فوق ولا تحت ولا يمين ولا شمال This is a classic philosopher talk This is the classical philosophy Philosophical talk here it says the soul is neither within this world nor outside of it. It is neither separate and independent of the body nor is it uh, with and directly of the body. It is not distinct from the body nor is it interacting with the body. It is not above, it is not below. It is not to the right, it is not to the left. That's what a soul is according to the philosophers. So what is it? Doesn't make sense neither from the beginning nor to the end. They did not comprehend and understand what has been mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah regarding the soul. And as a consequence, they went astray with all of this speech of theirs. Shaykh al-Islam, rahimahullah, he mentioned, Al-Mutakallimuna bin-Nisba lil-Ruh mumathila, wal-Falasifa mu'attila. The Mutakallimun, the people of uh, deviance and misguidance when it came to names and attributes, etc., they basically end up as mumathila when it comes to the soul. They basically make resemblance of the soul to your body and parts of your body and other resemblances like that. So they make a resemblance of your soul to what we recognize and see already. As for the philosophers, they are mu'attila. They strip all recognition of what the soul is. Not above, not below, not in the body, not outside the body, not right, not left, not above, not below, not this, not that. Anything you say, it's not that and it's not that. So they basically end up in nothingness. Mu'attila, rejection of everything. And that is the way of the people of deviance in all aspects. Mu'mathila, mu'attila, either resembling things to others where there is no resemblance 
or rejecting outright when you shouldn't be rejecting. And Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah very clear with the texts and the evidences that the soul is a stand-alone tangible entity. So we say, as Shaykh al mentions, نَحْنُ نَقُولُ هِيَ مِنْ أَمْرِ اللَّهِ The soul, it is from the affair of Allah. Something that Allah has the knowledge of. وَأَمْرُهَا And the affair of the soul is something strange. We don't know of the reality of the soul. وَلَا يُمْكِنْ إِدْرَاكُ حَقِيقَتِهَا وَلَا كُنْهِهَا and it's not possible for us to recognize the reality and the details and the descriptions of the soul. We don't have that yet. We know though that the soul is not composed, created from the same composition of our bodies. It's not meat and flesh and bones and how we recognize our bodies. The soul has a different composition uh, and that is all we know. Beyond that, we do not have details of the soul. And that is why Allah said in that ayah, وَمَا أُوتِيتُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ That you have not been given from knowledge إِلَّا قَلِيلًا Except for a small amount. You've not been given the knowledge of everything. We've only been given the knowledge of a small portion of the overall knowledge. So the knowledge of the soul is from the aspect that we do not have. We have not been given detailed knowledge of the soul and its realities. That's why Allah mentions you have not been given from knowledge except a small amount. We have a small amount of knowledge we don't have the details of these affairs. وَكَأَنَّ فِي هَذَا تَوْبِيخًا لَهُمْ وَكَأَنَّهُ يَقُولُ مَا فَاتَكُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا الرُّوحِ تَسْأَلُونَ عَنْهَا And it says though in this ayah there was a reprimand upon them. A reprimand. As if to say that of all of the knowledge that there is out there for you to gain that you have not, you're here talking about the soul, something that you haven't even been given the detailed knowledge of in the first place, and therefore you don't need to delve into in the first place. That is not from the knowledge and the details you've been provided. So from all of the knowledge you have, this is where you discuss and you talk. And that's something which is mentioned by the scholars as a general thing too. When a student of knowledge is gaining knowledge, when you're learning about your religion, then you should ask the relevant points, and you should study the relevant aspects, not asking hypothetical questions and scenarios, but what if this happens and what if that happens? And yes, if you look into the big books of fiqh, 20 volumes, 30 volumes, your hypothetical scenario will be in there somewhere. A hypothetical scenario that is more than likely never going to occur once in a million. But it will be in there somewhere. For you to be asking those hypothetical scenarios, but 
what if something happens and then something else happens and then something else happens then that happens what do I do what's the ruling so first this thing has to happen then that thing has to happen then that one has to happen then that one there if I get to that what am I gonna do what's the ruling gonna be so the scholars they say why why are you talking about that type of thing hypothetical scenarios what about this and what about that and the very basics and the core of the knowledge you haven't gained yet the very fundamentals and the principles that you're supposed to be learning you haven't learned them yet but it's all about what if this happens and what if that situation arises and that situation is never hardly ever going to arise but just in case like they mention in the books of fiqh various various scenarios on various different topics and things situations that are almost inconceivable that it's the chances of it happening are virtually zero but they mention them in the books of fiqh sometimes just to make points and to explain principles so just something that randomly from those affairs they mention if an in and this is one for the the elders who will understand the youngsters won't they mention if an individual comes home and it's extremely dark pitch black and he comes home to his house and it's all lights out electricity gone everything of course in those days the fuqaha writing there is no electricity all the lights have gone it's pitch black so the individual comes home and wishes to engage in the intimacy with his wife but it's all pitch black dark as he's arrived home and it so happens that his wife i think in the books of fiqh they mentioned perhaps her sister was at the house with her that evening or something and in the darkness of everything then a mistake occurs and then what do you do what's the fiqh ruling on this so they'll mention it but these are kinds of scenarios that the majority of people their questions not on that but revolving around scenarios that are really going to happen and you think to yourself if you step back 10 steps to the fiqh fundamental of that issue it will be better for you to learn that than to talk about this hypothetical scenario that you're rarely ever gonna come across so anyway here the philosophers they went into all types of hypothetical stories and imaginations and the soul this and the soul that but we know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has informed us we do not have knowledge of the details of these affairs. فَصَدَقَ اللَّهِ مَا أَكْثَرَ مَا يَخْفَى عَلَيْنَا مِمَّا هُوَا بَيْنَ أَيْدِينَا That how truthful this is, how truthful this is what Allah has mentioned to us here, that we have only a little bit of knowledge compared to everything we know, or what we know compared to everything we don't know, then what we know is only a tiny amount of that knowledge how small what we know and how great that which is concealed from us 
even in this world, do they not always give that example that there is more of the ocean unexplored than they've explored of the stars in space? There are more sections of the ocean humans have never been to, more creatures down in the depths they've never come across, even now all the time. 2018, after all the science and everything, all the time they are discovering new species that they never knew of before. So how much knowledge do we have compared to how much we do not have? فَالْكِتَابُ وَالسُنَّةِ بَيْنَ أَيْدِينَا وَيَخْفَى عَلَيْنَا شَيْءٌ كَثِيرٌ مِنْ حِكَامِهِمَا Now a very important point, he says, look, the Qur'an and the Sunnah we have right here, it's there in front of you, Bukhari, Muslim, Qur'an, it's all there. Right there, available in front of you, yet despite that, despite it being right there available in front of you how much of it do we know and how much of it is hidden from us quran right there available sunnah bukhari muslim everything right there available but how much of it do we know compared to how much of it is concealed from our knowledge that we have not learned and we have not studied that's why the scholars they say the more you study the more knowledgeable you become, then the more you realize how ignorant you actually are. The more knowledge you gain, the more you realize how much knowledge there is to actually gain. And so you realize how little you know. That's why the people, all of the mashayikh of these days, the YouTube mashayikh, all of the YouTube muftis and everybody else, those types of people, they look at a few bits and bobs here and there. They read the Quran. They read a few hadith in Bukhari and Muslim here and there. And now they think, Khalas, I've, I've understood this, I've understood that, this issue, that issue. Now they think they have knowledge. And they think they've gained a reasonable amount. I've read the whole of the Quran inside out every chapter ten times. I've read Bukhari beginning to end. I've read Muslim beginning to end. I've read the Kutub al-Sitta. Al-Kutub al-Sitta. Al-Nasaiya, Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, Ibn Dawood. I've read all of them beginning to end. So now he thinks he has knowledge. He's done the full six books of hadith. But maybe he doesn't even know of the existence of what they call Al-Kutub al-Tis'a. That there are another three books you can add on to those six then he doesn't know about the mahajim a further section of books that add on to that he doesn't know about all of the masanid more sections of books that are added on to that he doesn't even know the titles of them what they are where they are so if he knew that he knew there is a musnad of imam ahmed printed in 52 volumes and he knew about the Mahajim of At-Tabarani and the books of At-Tabari. He knew about all of that. Then he would realize, looking at that, actually what I've done so far is quite insignificant to all of this that's available in terms of knowledge. But if he doesn't know about any of that, Miskin doesn't got a clue what the Mahajim are, what the Masanid are, what this is, what that is. Hasn't got a clue about those books, never seen them in his life. All he knows is Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawood, Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, uh, Nasai, the famous books. Learns them, he thinks, that's it, I've done it, I've read all of these. 
He thinks he's got knowledge now because he doesn't know how much more knowledge is out there. That's the difference. A jahil learns a little bit. He doesn't know how much more knowledge is out there. So he thinks he's knowledgeable now. He's done it. But as for the alim, who becomes recognized with all of this knowledge and all of the branches of it and everything, then he realizes everything I've done, there's still multiple amounts, tons more out there that needs to be done yet. The chains of narration, how do they say that the narrators in those days, Al-Imam Malik and others, knew a million hadith? How did they know that? Hundreds of thousands of hadith memorized. How? There aren't even that many hadith in the first place. So how did they have so many hadith? The chains of narration. They used to memorize a hadith and they knew it by ten chains of narration. They knew those hadith with multiple different methods. Now a person comes along, mashallah, memorizes Arba'een and Nawawi and he thinks, excellent. I know the 40 hadith of Al-Imam Nawawi. 40. Not just 5 or 10 or 20. I've memorized 40. And it's not even 40. But he doesn't even know that. He thinks it's 40. So this is the thing with knowledge. The Shaykh says, look at how much there is available of that knowledge. It's there, the Quran, the Sunnah. But how much do we know compared to how much is still hidden from us? فَنَحْنُ نَعِيشُ فِي وَسَطْ he gives the example of the society. You live in this society and there are so many affairs of the society you don't know about. What's going on here, what's going on there, what, what people are up to, what's happening. Many things around you in society you may not know of. Maybe a person lives with his family in a small space in some restricted space, a house somewhere, and still he might not know what all of his family members are even getting up to. So, there is a great amount of knowledge concealed from us. إِذَنْ مَا أُوتِينَا مِنَ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا كَمَا قَالَ رَبُّنَا عَزَّ وَجَلُ We have not been given from knowledge except a small amount, as our Lord, the mighty and majestic, has informed us. So, in this story, you remember then what happened was there was this group of Jews and they wanted to go and try and prod the Prophet ﷺ over a complex issue which they thought they could then try and weave up. Some of them were saying, no, don't do it. Others were saying, go and do it. Go and ask about the soul. After when they went and asked and the ayat were revealed, the ayah was revealed, the soul is from the affair of Allah. You've not been given from the knowledge, etc. Then afterwards they said, قَدْ قُلْنَا لَكُمْ لَا تَسْأَلُوا Then some of them said, we told you don't go and ask him. We told you don't go. كَأَنَّهُمْ تَنَادَمُوا فِيمَا بَيْنَهُمْ So then they were regretting it, that they went and they got shown up. The ayah clearly highlighted the answer, refuted what they were trying to do. So they went and they came back saying, we told you you shouldn't have gone. And they were regretting it amongst themselves. And it could be also, as Shaykh al says, because they had some of these false interpretations of the soul. It could have been that they wanted to go there to open up this complex debate 
because they had all of these philosophical types of beliefs possibly too but then when they went to try and do all of that they were stopped straight away the eye of the revelation of the Quran regarding the soul being from the affair of Allah hidden to you you've not been given knowledge of it the end now they cannot debate they cannot open up they cannot but we this and but we that so they regretted it then amongst themselves then there is a small issue here it mentions مَا الْمُرَادُ بِالرُّوحِ فِي قَوْلِهِ تَعَالَى وَكَذَلِكَ أَوْحَيْنَا إِلَيْكَ رُوحًا مِّنْ أَمْرِنَا and similarly we reveal to you a ruh from our affair from our knowledge we reveal to you a ruh in that ayah the tafsir of it is the Quran that is referring to the Quran وَلِهَذَا قَالْ نَهْدِي بِهِ مَنْ نَشَاءَ مِنْ عِبَادِنَا and that's why Allah said we guide via it whom we will from our servants with that ruh and that ruh here is referring to the Quran in that ayah then at the end here it says a small issue the Shaykh highlights الَّذِي يَسْأَلْ تَعَنُّتًا هَلْ تَجِبُ إِجَابَتُهُ If somebody comes to ask you a question, as they say, for the sake of asking, they just want to build up this complex debate and discussion with you, they've come to ask you some complex affair, some delving into some issue that they have no right to delve into. If somebody comes wanting to open up that type of debate with you, coming and asking you those types of questions Ustav, Sheikh, what do you say about this, what do you say about that and you know they're only doing it because they want to open up this deep issue they want to open up some topic that there is nothing to discuss in it they just want to tie you up then do you have to reply to them do you have to respond the Sheikh says La, no لِأَنَّ اللَّهَ تَعَالَى خَيَّرَ النَّبِي صلى الله عليه وسلم في ذلك فإن جاءوك فاحكم بينهم أو أعرض عنهم الله سبحانه وتعالى said to the Prophet gave him a choice if they come to you then rule between them give them the, the answer or shun away from them turn away from them فإذا علمنا أن الرجل لا يسأل إلا تعنتا ويريد أن يشق على المسؤول so we, if we know that somebody is only coming to ask for the sake of asking and he just wants to open up some complex debate with you, then Then he doesn't have to be answered and you have a choice whether you want to discuss and open up with him or not. The reason why the shaykh he highlights this point here is because normally if somebody asks you a question, something that you know, they come and ask you something about the religion, some issue, you know the answer. Then the default is that you have to answer because it is a major sin to purposely conceal knowledge if you have it. If you have some knowledge and you purposely choose to conceal it, 
then that is considered a sin. So that's why Sheikh mentions this. If somebody you know is coming to you with a question, not genuinely, but they're coming to you because they want to open up some issue with you, or, or they, they, they're doing it for some other agenda, then you don't have to answer that. I recall on one occasion, just remembered now from this, one time we were sat in the lesson of a Sheikh Ali Nasr al-Faqihi. And somebody came, sat behind me in the class, sat in the circle, I was sat there, somebody came behind me, sat down. And he says to me, and I think the class was regarding seerah that was being discussed. So in the middle of the class, the Sheikh is giving the class and this person sits down and he says, not just me, and he says, uh, who was, he mentioned some names of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. Who was Maymuna, who was Hind, mentioned some names, one at a time. I said, that's the wife of the Prophet, that's the wife of the Prophet. Then he says, and who was Fatima, who was Fatima radiallahu anha, and then he says, who was Aisha. So when he got to the fourth one, I realized, He's obviously got some problem or something, whatever his issue is. He's got some issue, some problem. He's there, and he was mentally capable. It wasn't like he had some mental problem. Whatever he was trying to do, Allahu A'lam. But he was there, in the middle of that. So who's, who's this, and who's that, and who's this? Allahu A'lam, if he was there to try and show up the students of the Shaykh or something, that he wanted to attack the Shaykh with Allahu A'lam, what he wanted to do. But it became clear that he certainly wasn't asking genuinely. So the point here is, if somebody asks you, and it's not genuine, then you know the default isn't applicable. It's not that you're concealing knowledge now from that person. Somebody's coming and they've got an agenda with you. They've got some issue. They've got some uh, uh, problem they want to delve into like that. Then you don't have to get involved. The next narration, قَالَ حَدَّثَنَا إِسْمَعِيلَ قَالَ حَدَّثَنِي مَالِكَ عَنَ بِالزِّنَادِ عَنَ الْأَعْرَجِ عَنَ بِهُرَيْرَةِ أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم قال تَكَفَّلَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ جَاهَدَ فِي سَبِيلِهِ لَا يُخْرِجُهُ إِلَّا الْجِهَادِ فِي سَبِيلِهِ وَتَصْدِيقُ كَلِمَاتِهِ بِأَنْ يُدْخِلَهُ الْجَنَّةِ أَوْ يَرْجِعَهُ إِلَى مَسْكَنِهِ الَّذِي خَرَجَ مِنْهِ مع the narration is uh, straightforward in terms of the shahid from it. It mentions that Allah has taken it upon himself regarding the one who goes out uh, 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 in jihad, in the path of Allah, and he doesn't go out except for that purpose of the jihad in the path of Allah, uh, believing, believing in the words of Allah. وَتَصْدِيقُ كَلِمَاتِهِ Believing in the words of Allah, then Allah will enter him into paradise or return him back to his residence that he exited from with the reward or the war booty that he gains from that expedition. The purpose of that narration to highlight regarding the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala once again. There are other topics, but they are not from the core of the issue here regarding the uh, jihad, regarding the war booty. All that can be said regarding jihad is that it is an act of worship 
and it must be done in accordance to any other act of worship. All acts of worship Islamically are done upon the way that they've been prescribed in the Quran and the Sunnah upon the methodology of the Salaf of this Ummah. Jihad is an act of worship just like prayer is an act of worship. Wudu is an act of worship. Worship has pillars, has methods, has details in the Sunnah how it's to be done. Jihad is no different. Has its pillars, has its rulings and they have to be implemented. If you want to come along and pray and you don't fulfill the conditions of the prayer, you don't make wudu when you come and pray, invalid. The same with jihad. You want to go out and do jihad and you don't implement any of the rules of it, invalid for you. That's why the scholars have mentioned all of what's going on in so many places is not considered as jihad. They have not implemented anything of the Quran and Sunnah in terms of that act of worship. Jihad is worship. It is not done upon the way of the takfiris, upon the way of the khawarij, going out there, killing, bombing, young men, children. It is not done in that way. That is not jihad. That, as the scholars say, is not jihad. But in fact, it is fasad. It is not jihad. It is corruption that they are upon. And the next narration is similar to that. قال حدثنا محمد بن كثير قال حدثنا سفيان عن العمش عن أبي وائل عن أبي موسى قال جاء رجل إلى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فقال الرجل يقاتل حمية ويقاتل شجاعة ويقاتل رياء فأي ذلك في سبيل الله قال من قاتل لتكون كلمة الله هي العليا فهو في سبيل الله This highlights what we just mentioned the hadith when the Prophet ﷺ was asked, a man goes out fighting because of his hamiyatan, meaning nationalism uh, for his tribe, for his land, for some passion like that. Or goes out fighting because of courage and boldness, that's all it is. Or goes out fighting, showing off. Which of those is considered in the path of Allah? Fighting because of some passion, land, people, whatever. Fighting because courage, boldness, that's the way it is. Fighting because of showing off. Which of those ways is considered in the path of Allah? So the Prophet said, The one who fights to make the speech of Allah, the word of Allah, the most high. The one who fights for the shahada. فَلَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ To be raised. كَلِمَةُ اللَّهِ الْعُلْيَا To make the tawheed and the banner of tawheed to be raised. Not for your people and land and tribe or nationalism or anything else. Not for power, authority, government. But the one who fights for the tawheed and for the word of Allah to be raised. And that again highlights to you the point regarding the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is what we're going to round off today. Next time it starts on a slightly different topic regarding the iradah, the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We'll begin with that next week insha'Allah ta'ala at approximately 8 p.m. 8 p.m. What time is Isha going to be next week? 9 perfect. So we'll start at 8 p.m. next week insha'Allah ta'ala. 
وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين